Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Um, I'm working the third shift at the Imperial Gas Station. I just had an obscene phone call. And this guy came in earlier, and he was kind of dressed improperly, but I kind of ignored him. I think it was that guy. Kelly Burke Dove was born on August 30th, 1961, to parents Rachel and Fred Berg. She was described as a brave, fun, and happy young woman who was scrappy when she needed to be. At the age of 15, Kelly married Dale Dove after becoming pregnant, and by the age of 17, she graduated from Turner Ashby High School. In 1982, at the age of 20, she was living in Bridgewater, Virginia, and had been married for five years and had a four-year-old daughter named Tammy. She and her three sisters, Deb, Rose, and Elaine, worked at the Imperial Gas Station, where Deb was the manager. The gas station was located on South Main Street, Route 11, near Dukes Plaza in Harrisonburg, Virginia. The sisters frequently received crude prank phone calls while at work, but Kelly received more than anyone. On June 18, 1982, one of Kelly's sisters traded shifts with her, leaving Kelly alone at the store overnight. Between 2.27 a.m. and 2.31 a.m., Kelly called Harrisonburg Police. She first called to report that an improperly dressed man had recently been at the store and had returned. But I kind of ignored him. I think it was that guy because he just drove through the parking lot a few seconds before I got the call. Could, you know, you have somebody kind of keep an eye out on me? Okay, this is on... Main Street. South Main? Uh-huh. Over beside McDonald's. Thank you. Bye. It seems Kelly was too polite to describe in detail what he was actually doing, but it's likely he had exposed himself to her. She quickly called the police again to report that the suspect was driving a silver or gray Ford. When she called the police a third time, she sounded panicked and asked them to please hurry because he was now calling her from the payphone in the parking lot, making obscene comments. Suddenly, there was a noise and the call ended. Officers arrived a couple of minutes later to find the gas station empty. Kelly's parents believed her abductor had been someone Kelly had gone to high school with that had a long history of indecent exposure and making obscene telephone calls. He also drove a silvery gray Ford. Police have asked why she wouldn't have told the dispatcher his name if she knew him, but it's possible the person had either obscured their face somehow or Kelly had simply not recognized him, given it had been several years since they graduated. 
There's also the possibility that Kelly was so terrified that she failed to mention the man by name during one of the calls. Either way, the police found the possibility of this man being the culprit so plausible that they asked Kelly's parents not to use his name publicly. Yet despite this, he was never charged with any crime as there was simply not enough evidence to attempt any kind of conviction. Her family thinks that her abductor must have been armed because they said she would have fought hard otherwise and there was no sign of a struggle. Someone working at a nearby convenience store said a man driving a gray car stopped at the store about half an hour before Kelly disappeared. The witness described the man as 20 to 25 years old with shoulder-length blonde hair, but it's unclear if it was the same person who abducted Kelly. After her abduction, the abundance of obscene phone calls nearly completely stopped. Lieutenant Hubert B. Myers stated in 1991 that police had developed one main suspect in the case, but not enough evidence could be found to charge him. This suspect had admitted to police that he had exposed himself to a woman at the Imperial Gas Station and had a history of making obscene, harassing phone calls to women. A search warrant was issued to explore the property where the man lived, but nothing connected with Kelly's disappearance emerged. After her presumed murder, her husband gave full legal custody of their daughter Tammy to Kelly's parents, who then raised her. The gas station where Kelly disappeared from has since been torn down. The case was reopened in 2020, and investigators have narrowed their suspect list to one person, but have not released his name. Hopefully, her family will soon get answers, but as of August 2022, Kelly has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. On April 9, 1988, two young students, 20-year-old Richard Call, known by his middle name Keith, and 18-year-old Cassandra Haley, who went by Sandy, were both students at Christopher Newport College in Newport News, Virginia, and had made plans to go on their first date. Keith was looking forward to it, despite a recent breakup with his girlfriend of four years. He would pick Sandy up at her home in Grafton in his red 1982 Toyota Celica. They first went to see a movie at the theater and then attended a party at the University Square Apartments. They were last seen together around 1.30 a.m., leaving the party, and Sandy had a 2 a.m. curfew to make. With only 30 minutes to spare, they strangely stopped at the nearby York River Outlook, a spot where young couples were known to visit. This would be their last stop, and Sandy would never make her curfew. At 7 a.m., Keith's father was traveling on Colonial Parkway when he thought he saw his son's car parked at one of the Parkway's scenic overlooks, but didn't think much of it because Keith had told his parents he was staying overnight with a friend. At about 7.30 a.m., a park ranger on patrol saw the car, and when it was still there at 9 a.m., he decided to stop and investigate. When authorities looked at the abandoned vehicle, they noted the keys were still inside and a watch and eyeglasses were on the dashboard. Strangely, nearly all of Keith's clothes he was wearing that night, including his underwear, were in the back seat along with Sandy's clothes and her underwear. In addition, only three shoes were found with one of Sandy's strangely missing. Concern took over when it was learned that neither of them had made it home. No trace of the couple could be found at the overlook. 
Authorities initially believed they had gone swimming and drowned, but a thorough search of the river showed no sign of them. Also, it wasn't likely that the couple would have gone skinny dipping in water barely 40 degrees, and Sandy was known to be scared of the water. Sandy's older sister, Terry, was a Newport News police officer, and as soon as she learned what happened, she knew that her sister wouldn't have gone swimming and wouldn't have disappeared voluntarily. She quickly drove to the scene and told park rangers that she was sure they were dealing with a crime. Sandy was never late for curfew and believed she likely intended to come home after leaving the party 30 minutes before curfew. Also, Keith's family said that he usually avoided driving on the Colonial Parkway, especially at night, because of recent murders. Although the 22-mile thoroughfare was known for its idyllic scenery and historical monuments, it became very, very dark at night and somewhat daunting and seedy due to not only the killings of those parked along the secluded stretches of road, but because of illegal activity and the lack of road lights. After tracking dogs, seemed to pick up the couple's scent heading down a steep embankment to a small beach below, investigators scoured the shoreline for more than three miles in each direction. Divers spent hours searching underwater, but found no signs that Keith or Sandy had been on the beach. Shockingly, between 1986 and 1989, three other sets of young couples, all of them college students, had gone missing off the Colonial Parkway or Interstate 64 in and around the Williamsburg, Virginia area. In all these cases, their cars were found abandoned with most of their possessions inside. Of the eight victims, Keith and Sandy were the only ones never located. The first couple to be murdered was in October of 1986. 21-year-old Rebecca Douse and 27-year-old Kathy Thomas went missing and were found by a jogger three days later. The jogger saw a car on the riverbank of the Cheatham Annex Overlook in dense shrubbery just a few feet from an embankment and assumed a drunk driver had an accident. He called authorities to investigate, and that's when their bodies were found one in the back seat, and one in the hatchback. It was evidence the killings happened elsewhere because of the small amount of blood found at the scene. Also, the killer doused the car in diesel fuel and attempted to ignite it using matches, but was unsuccessful. At the autopsy, a clump of hair was retrieved from Kathy's hand. It's unknown if those hairs were preserved, but with the recent case solved using rootless hair in five-year-old Ann Pham's case, it may be possible to determine who their killer was. The second set of murders occurred 11 months later in September of 1987. An officer found a Ford Ranger with both doors open parked in the area known as Lover's Lane. Its location was not actually on the Colonial Parkway, but was close to it in a parking lot of the Ragged Island Wildlife Management Area off Highway 17. The engine was running, the radio playing, and the windshield wipers were on, but no one was inside. However, there was a neat pile of folded clothes, including men's and women's underwear. It was determined that the vehicle belonged to David Knobling. Two days later, another jogger found a young woman's body washed up on the embankment of the James River. The body belonged to 14-year-old Robin Edwards, who had snuck out of her house the night she went missing. About 100 feet away was the body of 20-year-old David Knobling, who had also washed up on the riverbank. Both had been shot and left partially clothed. 
seven months later, Sandy and Keith went missing. The fourth couple to be murdered was over a year after Sandy and Keith went missing. In September 1989, 21-year-old Daniel Lauer and his brother's girlfriend, 18-year-old Anna Maria Phelps, disappeared. After visiting Virginia Beach for Labor Day and the Greek Week festivities, Daniel decided to move in with his brother Clint Lauer and his brother's girlfriend, Anna Maria, to help out with rent. Daniel was heading into town to pack up some clothes and personal items to carry back, and Anna Maria had called a ride to visit her family. After all this was said and done, the pair traveled east on I-64 to make the two-hour drive back to Virginia Beach. However, they would never make it, and Clint would never see his brother or girlfriend alive again. The next day, Daniel's Chevy Nova was located abandoned at the New Kent rest stop on I-64, the opposite direction they were headed. It would be six more weeks before the pair's remains were found by turkey hunters over a mile from Daniel's car. It was an embarrassment to the authorities who had missed them lying underneath an electric blanket taken from Daniel's car. Because there was no mud on Daniel's car tires, the pair likely stopped at the rest stop, were forced into another vehicle, and ultimately taken to the muddy trail in the secluded woods. Some believe another couple killed seven years later was also part of this string of murders. In May 1996, Lolly Winans and Julianne Williams went missing while camping in the Shenandoah National Park. Soon after, their bodies were found restrained, gagged, undressed, and bled out from a wound to the neck. As for Keith and Sandy, many believe the killer dumped their bodies in the York River, which were carried out into the Chesapeake Bay, never to be found. Detectives questioned whether the couple had even been in the car when it was abandoned at the Parkway Overlook. Keith might have been pulled over by someone impersonating a police officer on his drive to take Sandy home, perhaps along Route 17 on the way to Sandy's house in Grafton. The suspect might have left the car and belongings at the Overlook to confuse law enforcement. Due to several vehicles in the case having their windows halfway rolled down and wallets on the dashboard, the victims may have complied with a stop-and-search request. The FBI and investigators with the Virginia State Police have included that the killer was likely a law enforcement officer in some capacity. Once the killing stopped in 1989, it was suggested that he may have had a partner and one or both of them had died or were in jail on an unrelated offense. Detective Steve Spangola of the Cold Justice TV show reopened the cold cases and concluded that the murders were likely the work of different killers, specifically the initial murders in the series. He revealed in a 37-page booklet that he believes the two female couples murdered years apart were victims of a hate crime by someone prejudiced against lesbians. He thinks the other murders might have resulted from a robbery gone wrong. Authorities believe the vehicles were all staged to throw off the investigators. They reported that the killer or killers may have worked as park rangers on the Colonial Parkway during the first murders, but were later transferred to the Shenandoah before the very similar deaths of Julianne Williams and Lolly Winans. There was an odd lack of motive as nothing was ever stolen from any victims, no wallets or other possessions. There was also no indication of rape or sexual assault against any victims. 
However, the rape kits for one case were mistakenly destroyed, and Daniel and Anna Maria were too decomposed for an accurate result. One of the other less agreed-upon theories by the FBI is that the killer or killers was making his way downriver in a boat and had stopped at the overlook to murder the couples. This idea came from the diesel fuel used in the first couple's murders. They noted that diesel fuel isn't something that many people travel with regularly unless they're on a boat. This led FBI investigators to believe that at the time of the murders, the killer was either coming off their boat or returning to their boat with excess diesel fuel and ended up running into their victims. While this is possible, many believe this is a stretch. One of the many alternative theories is that they stopped murdering people in Virginia because they moved to Florida. An investigator believes that Michael Nicolau, who moved from Charlottesville, Virginia and Virginia Beach to Florida in the late 80s, may have been the killer. This would not only put him in the right spot to commit the Colonial Park murders, but also near a series of murders that occurred in Vermont. He allegedly murdered his first wife before running over his second wife and then killing himself in Florida. He also may have carried many serial killer names during his reign of terror. The stabbing death of Daniel Lauer in 1989 is very similar to the M.O. of the Connecticut River Valley slayings that occurred in Vermont. Therefore, Nicolau could have murdered multiple people across the Northeast until he moved to Florida, where he ended up taking his own life. The M.O.s for all the murders were all slightly different, stabbing, shooting, strangling. That could mean that with each murder, they were changing things up and trying to determine which worked the best. Then after years of no similar murders in the area, some believe that the killer struck again. Finally, in 2009, two Blacksburg College students were shot to death near their car in the Jefferson National Forest, an MO eerily similar to a few Colonial Parkway murders. A Virginia Tech couple, described by their ministers as godly young people, were found murdered by a man walking his dog in the early hours of August 27, 2009. 19-year-old David Metzler and 18-year-old Heidi Childs were discovered deceased in the Caldwell Fields parking lot overlooking a field of wildflowers, a popular hangout for Virginia Tech students. Autopsies revealed the couple was killed sometime the night before. David's body was found in his car, and Heidi was found outside the vehicle on the ground. It is widely reported that the murders of the first eight victims were not solved due to Virginia State Police, FBI, and local authorities not working well together and not sharing evidence. The main person of interest was a York County Sheriff deputy named Fred Atwell. He repeatedly inserted himself into the investigation and constantly communicated with the families. He was also involved in fraud connected to the first case. Throughout the murder investigation, he remained a mysterious and controversial figure. That was until 2009 when he became somewhat of a hero for whistleblowing on the FBI in Northfolk for losing control of about 80 highly graphic crime scene photos from the murders. The photographs were being used as a training tool for a security company and were leaked and landed in the hands of the media. This stirred the pot and heated the case up again after going cold, forcing the FBI to look at the cases again and begin testing evidence. 
But once again, Adwell began acting strangely and started concocting these elaborate stories related to the cases. In 2011, he was arrested after being accused of robbing a woman at gunpoint and taking her money. He told her he had been living in the woods and was hungry. He was also arrested in connection with an alleged phone scheme regarding a car raffle in which all the proceeds were supposed to go to the Colonial Parkway Victims Fund. Also, in 2011, he allegedly called a suicide hotline and said he was a suspect in a serial murder investigation and wanted to commit suicide by cop. The victim's families initially thought he was on their side, but sometime later changed their minds. He would die in 2018 in a prison hospital. To this day, some of their surviving family members are still pushing the FBI to test evidence using the latest DNA advancements. In 2018, the Facebook page Colonial Parkway Murders, run by Kathy's brother, Bill Thomas, revealed that DNA had been found at three of the four crime scenes, which could potentially conclusively link the cases and lead to an arrest. As of 2018, the hair found in Kathy's hand and the biological sample found on Robin have not been tested. However, it is reported that old DNA found on a victim was recently tested by the FBI, but no results have been released to the public along with what evidence was tested. Throughout the investigation, several people have topped the list of suspects, but no hard evidence has tied anyone to the Colonial Parkway or Lover's Lane murders. As of August of 2022, Keith and Sandy have never been found, and all these cases remain unsolved. Rachel Nicole Good was born to Brenda and Carrie Good and graduated from Fort Defiance High School in Fort Defiance, Virginia. At the age of 20, she was already the mother of three children. Rachel had always been a little rebellious, but was described as kind-hearted and always ready and willing to help others. In 2003, Rachel was rumored to be romantically involved with Adam Williams, a married police officer in the town of Elkton, Virginia. On October 18, 2003, she was seen with friends in the parking lot behind the Elkton Volunteer Fire Department near the Coin Laundry off Spotswood Trail at about 6 p.m. Her friends watched her leave in her Dodge Neon, not knowing this would be the last time they would ever see Rachel. Later, her car was found parked at her home in the 100 block of Virginia Avenue in Elkton, but there was no sign of Rachel. At the time of her disappearance, it was reported that Rachel was allegedly 10 weeks pregnant with Officer Williams' child. He was the first officer on the case and spent four days as the lead investigator in her disappearance with open access to her home, which he returned to several times. He would have had first-hand access to any evidence available in the case. It would be several days before his superiors would learn of his relationship with Rachel and immediately remove him from the case. Rachel's mother, Brenda, recalled the officer appearing nervous and shaking quite a bit when he took her statement. He also advised her to let him know if she needed anything and to call him directly and he would take care of it. She thought his behavior was odd at the time, but it wasn't until later that she learned he was in a secret relationship with her daughter. 
Rachel's parents divorced when she was much younger, and her father may have known more about the relationship than her mother. He recalled Rachel telling him that she was dating a police officer, and she even let him listen to a voicemail from the officer asking Rachel how she was doing and saying hey. They would also find letters between Williams and Rachel that also suggested a romantic relationship. Once her loved ones realized what was happening, they reported it to the chief. Rumors began circulating about Williams being a person of interest who placed himself directly into the investigation. Virginia State Police took over the investigation at the request of the Elkton Police Department 10 days after her disappearance. Williams was then placed on paid administrative leave. Suspicions about Williams would continue to grow, and eventually, a search warrant was executed on his home in connection with her case. Three months after her disappearance, in January of 2004, Williams would resign from the force. A couple of weeks into the investigation, Rachel's father, Carrie, had called Williams and asked to meet and talk about the case. They agreed to meet at a McDonald's, but Williams never showed up. Officer Williams allegedly gave Rachel money for an abortion before her disappearance, which she spent on other things. She did not have the procedure and reportedly threatened to tell his wife about their secret romance. Police have also used telephone records to track Rachel's calls shortly before her disappearance. It would be nearly a year before her mother would learn that her daughter's case was being investigated as a homicide. Later, one lead came in that her body was in a well in Lake Arrowhead. Once the well was located, it was determined that it had been covered up two or three years earlier and would cost at least 10 grand to dig it up, but her father couldn't afford this. Carrie also stated that the house on the land adjacent to the well had its basement completely remodeled at the same time Rachel disappeared. Therefore, he does not believe it was a coincidence and that she may have been killed in the basement and thrown in the well. Another theory is that Williams may have talked her into an impromptu trip to Florida and Williams' father orchestrated the foul play. He knows that there are endless possibilities, and at the end of the day, it's obvious who took her life, but her location remains a mystery. Prosecutors assembled a special grand jury to investigate Rachel's case in 2004, but no indictments were handed down. The FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office have assisted in the investigation, but nearly 20 years later, there still isn't enough evidence to prove murder. Commonwealth's attorney, Marcia Garst, held a news conference on Court Square in Harrisonburg in 2007 and pledged that the case had not been forgotten. She said that the person of interest has not changed and he lives in another state, but on occasion has returned to Elkton. She also said that police know where he is and keep him under constant surveillance. It is reported that he moved to Denham Springs, Louisiana, but it's unclear if that's where he remained. Rachel's family filed a $5.5 million civil suit against Williams, the town of Elkton, and the police chief. But a judge later dismissed the case against the former chief and the town of Elkton, leaving Williams as the sole defendant. When the trial was scheduled in 2016, Williams did not appear, and the judge allowed a continuance related to Williams having alleged medical issues. 
Additionally, the wrongful death suit was dropped due to a battle with the Virginia State Police over access to Rachel's phone records and her family not being given access. William's father was also accused of assisting his son in his alleged horrific crime. He reportedly traveled from Florida to Virginia for a one-day visit with his son right after Rachel's disappearance. Another wrongful death suit against Williams was filed by Rachel's father for roughly $50,000 that would go to her children. Williams, having somehow dodged court for many years, claimed the case should be thrown out for several reasons. One is that there was a two-year statute of limitations for wrongful death suits. The other was his argument that the lawsuit fails to state a claim that an unlawful act was committed. Rachel's children have grown up without their mother, and her parents remain devoted to getting justice for their daughter. While Williams is labeled legally liable for Rachel's death, he is not criminally liable due to lack of evidence. As of August 2022, Rachel has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.